Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 28 in our series, Going Through the Gospel of Matthew. If my voice sounds a little bit tired today, that's because it is. I had a really long week of teaching uh, this week at school to where I really didn't have a lot of downtime. And so my voice is a little bit hoarse right now, and it seems to be going out just a tad bit. Uh, but I've just got my microphone extra close to my mouth so that I don't have to talk as loud and project as much whenever I'm going through this stuff. And so hopefully we'll be able to push through. That being said, we are in the back half of Matthew chapter 9 today, and we are continuing through our discussion of the sets of miracles that Jesus has been performing in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew immediately following after the Sermon on the Mount. And the way that we've basically been breaking this down is we've broken this whole section, these two chapters, into three cycles of miracle stories, right? And the reason why we're doing that is because it seems like that's how Matthew himself structured this whenever he wrote the gospel, right? And so in each of these cycles, it seems like there's a certain pattern that plays out. Matthew shares one miracle story, followed by a second miracle story, followed by a third miracle story, followed by a general description of Jesus' ministry at that time period, followed by a series of interactions that include some sort of call to discipleship. And we've seen that cycle play out twice so far, and today we're going to look at the third cycle, which is going to play out, uh, which is then going to be followed by another break into discourse, uh, which once again is just kind of how the whole Gospel of Matthew and its primary body is structured, right? It's a series of five narratives and discourses, right? Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. Chapters 1 through 4 was our first narrative, 5 through 7, our first discourse. Chapters 8 and 9 is our second narrative, and then we're going to go into chapter 10, which will be another discourse, right? And Jesus is going to be talking to the 12 apostles. I say all that because I think that understanding the big picture of the Gospel of Matthew will help us understand the small stuff and even the in-depth stuff we don't talk about in these, um, just like these different lessons. Uh, you'll be able to get those in your own personal study if you understand the big picture stuff. So if I keep harping on that, that's why I like to accentuate it. And so, uh, what we've seen so far, just to briefly recap this, is that in the first cycle, I called those the miracles of healing, and that's because most of the miracles that we saw there were related to healing, right? The first miracle involved Jesus cleansing a leper, the second one involved Jesus healing a centurion servant, and then the third one involved him healing Peter's mother-in-law, right? And then we had the description of ministry called discipleship. The second cycle of miracles that we saw, I called those miracles of authority, because the miracles that Matthew listed Jesus as performing there seem to specifically revolve around some sort of authority that Jesus was proclaiming, and the way that people responded were in response to his authority, right? So we see Jesus calming a storm, we see Jesus casting demons into pigs, and we see Jesus healing a paralytic and forgiving his sins. And this demonstrates that Jesus has authority over nature, over supernatural stuff, so supernature, and also over sin itself, right? And so those set of miracles were all about the authority of Jesus, and once again was followed up by a description of his ministry and a call to discipleship, which then leads us into the third cycle today, which I'm calling uh, miracles of restoration, because that's really what we're going to see being accomplished here in these miracles. Jesus is going to be restoring something that was lost in all of these. And really what I also want you to notice is that almost all of these miracles have been miracles of healing to an extent, right? Uh, in fact, what we're going to see by the end of this section is that Jesus will have performed not nine, but ten miracles, because one of the miracle stories in this section is actually going to include two miracles. And so, although we have three cycles of three miracles, we're actually going to have ten miracles altogether. And from those ten miracles, nine of them are actually going to be healing miracles, because there's one miracle that had nothing to do with other people because Jesus was calming a storm. But all the other ones have had to do 
a deal with Jesus actually performing some sort of healing act on somebody in some form or capacity. It might have taken different forms and he might have done it in different ways, but they all were miracles of healing except for the one that we talked about last week with the calming of the storm. And the reason why Matthew included that one, I tried to emphasize last week because it is a huge, huge miracle that really starts getting the disciples realizing that Jesus might be something more than just a man. And so, um, we're going to see a bunch of miracles of healing in this section too, uh, specifically restorative healing. But one thing I also want us to notice as we're going into this section is, once again, the increased response that Matthew is giving us uh, to Jesus' miracles, right? In that first section, we didn't really get to see how people were responding to Jesus' miracles because Matthew was trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was able to do these things, right? He's just showing that Jesus can back up the authority, the authoritative claims he was making in the Sermon on the Mount. In the second cycle, though, now that we're more accustomed to Jesus being able to perform miracles, Matthew starts giving us insight to how people are responding to what Jesus is doing. And then by the time we get to this third cycle, we are going to see more and more how people are responding. And there's really going to be three groups involved, right? The first one is obviously Jesus. The second group is the religious leaders. And the third group is the crowd, right? Those are the three people we want to keep our eyes on as we go into the section, because we're going to see how they respond in both a positive and negative sense. Uh, And really from the religious leaders, we're going to see a lot of pushback from Jesus, because that's really been the growing theme through this that's going to continue to develop as we go throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, to where really Jesus is going to be taking more of a David-like persona, right? As he goes through this gospel to where he looks like David uh, in the early stories of like 1 Samuel and stuff like that. Whereas the religious leaders are going to be a lot more like King Saul, right? Who is growing envious of young David as David starts gaining power and gaining the, um, gaining popularity amongst the crowds and stuff like that, right? That's kind of the dynamic that we're going to see. And so if you're familiar with the David and Saul story, we kind of see it replaying out here with Jesus and the religious leaders. That being said, I've done enough talking ahead of time. Let's actually hop into the text. We start with um, chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, and in these verses, uh, we encounter our first real miracle story, but it's really a sandwich, right? To where there's going to be one story that starts, and then another story that takes place, and then the first story ends. And so, altogether, there's actually going to be two miracles that are shared here. This is what we read. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue official came and was bowing down before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be saved from this. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. At once the woman was saved from her hemorrhage. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he was saying, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, coming in, he took her by the hand and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout all the land. Okay, so right here, like I said, we have two miracles, right? We have Jesus literally performing a resurrection of a young girl and Jesus healing a woman who touches the fringe of his garment. And these miracles might seem unrelated at first, and you might think that the only reason that the author shares this is because they literally happen back to back, and so it just fit for him to be like, hey, look, two miracles at one time, right? Killed two birds with one stone. 
But as we read through it, you're going to notice that there are certain things that are actually related in this story. Uh, there's actually even more connections that we read once you compare the other Gospels, because I think it's the Gospel of Mark. It actually tells us that the synagogue official's daughter she's actually 12 years old, which is interesting because that's how long the woman's been bleeding. And so like, there's a lot of different connections um, that even the other gospels highlight in regards to these two stories. But Matthew himself highlights a few connections as well that we want to take note of as we go through this. But before we even do that, what I want to do is I want to highlight the fact that these two miracles actually kind of seem to be callbacks to the very first two miracles that we read about back at the beginning of chapter eight in our first cycle of the miracles of healing. Because think about it, right? I mean, um, so this whole thing starts with a synagogue official coming and bowing down before Jesus and informing him about his daughter who has just died. Well, this seems kind of like a natural advancement and progression of the second miracle that we read back in Matthew chapter 8, where a centurion came and knelt before Jesus and told him about his servant who was dying, right? And so in both cases, you have somebody coming to Jesus talking about somebody who is sick, but in this instance, it's actually more severe. Right? And so we have this person coming before Jesus and announcing somebody has died rather than somebody simply dying. right? And so there's this natural advancement and this progression. And then whenever you get to the story about the woman with the bleeding discharge, right, very much like the leper, which was the first miracle that Matthew shared, right, um, both of these people are people who have been ostracized by their society due to their failure to be clean according to Levitical standards, right? So if you go back to the Levitical law, there are laws about leprous people. There are laws about people with bleeding and discharges and stuff like that. And both people are ostracized as a result of this because there's certain cleanliness laws that God demanded from the people at this time period, right? Uh, and so both of them are like this, and both of them are healed by some sort of touching between them and Jesus. But once again, this woman is an advancement of the previous story, because in the previous story, you have this guy, we don't know how long he has been a leper, but Jesus comes and touches him. This woman, we know exactly how long she's been bleeding, and it's been a really, really long time. And then the way she's healed is not by Jesus reaching out to her, but by her reaching out to him in faith. And so whenever you're actually looking at this, uh, one thing I want you to understand is like a lot of times we just view these as separate stories, but if you look at it in the broad scope of what Matthew is communicating through his gospel, there is a natural progression and advancement in the gospel itself where Matthew is trying to communicate something to the audience, right? In the beginning, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is the one taking the initiative in a lot of these situations, and then you have some Gentiles who are taking the initiative, right? The Roman centurion and stuff like that right? But Jesus is the one really taking the initiative to start planting little seeds of the kingdom everywhere he goes. But now as we go further into the gospel, and now we've arrived here at the back half of chapter nine, now you have other people who are stepping out in faith, right? And Jesus is, in, uh, he's beginning to praise people more and more for their faith. Faith is a huge thing. We've seen this every single week as we've been going through these, right? In every single cycle, Jesus has had something to say to people about their faith. And that's going to be the true in this cycle as well, right? People, are, He's going to talk about their faith, their faith, their faith. Because Matthew's trying to communicate something about what it looks like to truly live by faith. And he's going to contrast that with the religious leaders who have no faith whatsoever, right? And so I just want us to understand that and to be aware of that as we're going into this, because there are certain connections that we definitely want to take notice of. And so let's read through this. So while he was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue official came and was bowing down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Uh, so whenever it says while he was saying these things to them, it's literally saying that this story right here 
takes place immediately following what we read in the previous verses, right? Whenever Jesus was talking to the disciples of John the Baptist, right whenever he's talking to them, this is whenever the um, synagogue official comes and approaches Jesus. In the other gospels, we learn that this guy's name is Jairus, right? Matthew doesn't tell us that. Uh, he probably could, um, but to him, the name is not that uh, important. And so he just moves on. He tells us a synagogue official comes to Jesus. He bows down before him. Think about the humility that it takes for a synagogue official to show up and bow down before an itinerant rabbi with no official rabbinical training, right? He shows up, he bows down before Jesus, and he says this, my daughter has just died. Once again, this is an advancement of a similar miracle we saw with the centurion's servant. Whenever the centurion came before Jesus, he knelt down and said that my servant is dying, right? He has an illness. But Jairus right here, he says, my, well, the synagogue official, he says, my daughter has just died. There's an increased faith that Matthew is trying to highlight here. And whenever you look at the other Gospels, you'll actually see that um, the way that Matthew's framing this story here is he's kind of condensing it a little bit. Because really what how it actually played out is that um, the synagogue official comes before Jesus and he communicates that his daughter is dying. And then as they're walking there, they learn that the daughter died. Right, And so the daughter actually dies along the way there, and that's kind of what we learn from the other Gospels. But for Matthew's account, he's kind of condensing this just to um, get to the main point, uh, and he's accentuating the synagogue official's faith to where no matter what, he trusts Jesus and believes that Jesus can do something that includes authority over death. Right, that, That's really what this gets down to. Right, He says that his daughter has just died, yet he still believes that Jesus has the ability to do something about it right? That is remarkable of faith, especially because we haven't seen Jesus do anything quite like that yet, right? Like we, as Christians, we take for granted the fact that Jesus has power over death because he literally conquered death, right? These guys did not know this at this time period, right? Jesus was simply a first century Jewish rabbi going around teaching and preaching and performing miracles. And this guy just assumes that Jesus has the power over death itself. And he says, my daughter just died, Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So he is confident that Jesus can resurrect her. There is a difference though, right? The centurion, he said, you know what? You don't even need to come with me. Um, if you just speak the words, it'll happen. I don't think that this is Matthew criticizing the synagogue official for not saying this. I think that this is just him explaining this is how it happened. But there is that distinction that you can notice, right? So the stories aren't the exact same. And Jesus doesn't criticize the guy either. Jesus doesn't say, don't you know that I could just, with a word from my mouth, say that your daughter will live and she'll live? Well, no. Jesus gets up, he begins to follow him, and so do his disciples, right? And so if you're picturing this in your head, there's this movement, right? They get up, and they begin to go, and there's a crowd following them. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. All right, so this woman... We don't know much about her, but she's been suffering from some sort of hemorrhage and she's been bleeding for 12 years, right? This is a really, really long time, right? And if you know anything about the Levitical codes and the Levit Levitical laws that you read about in the Old Testament, this woman would have been exiled and ostracized from her community, literally living in exile, um, like just on her own, because according to the law, anything she touched would become unclean because of her discharge of blood. Right? So this woman, once again, she is going, like whenever it says she had been suffering from a hemorrhage, uh, it makes you wonder whether the suffering it's talking about is more of a physical ailment or the emotional ailment that comes from being ostracized from everybody. Right? This woman who for 12 years has been having to deal with this, right? And we don't know how she got it. We don't know what's going on here. But for 12 years, she's been dealing with this. Yet she also 
believes that Jesus can offer her something that nobody else can. So she comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment, right? Because apparently she has come to the conclusion that Jesus is different than anybody else, right? The other Jewish leaders, they would have rebuked her and told her to go away. But who knows? Like, I don't want to speculate too much. But who knows? Maybe this woman has heard the story about Jesus and the leper. And she has learned that Jesus has the type of character where he is willing to approach unclean people and meet them where they're at. And so she boldly comes here and she touches the fringe of his garment for she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be saved from this, right? She has so much faith in Jesus' power that she thinks that if she could simply touch his clothes, she'll be healed, right? That's how much faith she has in him. And it lets you know, once again, like the idea that Jesus has been growing in popularity throughout all of this to where people are hearing stories and they're learning about him to where she has the boldness to do this. It's a really impressive story. And so she goes, she touches the fringe of his garment, but Jesus turning and seeing her says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. And at once the woman was saved from her hemorrhage. So there's a lot of details about this story that we learn from the other gospel accounts. Um, But Matthew, once again, he's telling a very concise story because it has other things he's trying to get to as well. Right. And so he doesn't really mention the crowds that were around him at this time period. He doesn't talk about Jesus feeling the power going from him. The main thing that Jesus Uh, The main thing that Matthew is highlighting is the faith of the woman, right? The woman is saying, if I only touch his garment, I'll be saved from this. And whenever Jesus turns and sees her, he says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you, right? He doesn't say that it was his garment that saved her. He doesn't say that it was the touch that saved her. He says it was your faith, right? And so it's a slight correction, but it's also an affirmation. And he's really praising her here. And the thing that I want you to notice, the connection between these two stories is what Jesus calls the woman, daughter, right? As far as I'm aware, and I think this is correct, this is the only story in the Bible where Jesus ever calls somebody daughter, right? It might suggest that she's pretty young, right? And so if she's been dealing with this bleeding for 12 years, I mean, this could be that it was from a very young age, maybe when she was 12 years old, right? She's been dealing with it. She's still a very young girl, presumably younger than Jesus, who is like in his early 30s at this point, right? He turns to her and says, daughter, take courage right? He encourages her. He calls her daughter. And once again, he is going to visit the synagogue official's daughter, right? And so we see here in this story that Jesus has compassion on daughters and is willing to heal them and he is capable of healing them, right? Just by touch, right? The woman touched him and she is healed and he affirms her for her faith. At once the woman was saved from her hemorrhage. Well, this lets us know how the next story is going to conclude, right? Because here we have another daughter who is not only suffering, she is dead and Jesus is going to heal her by touch again, right? And so there is this connection and there's there's other thematic things that you could highlight as well. Um, but for the sake of time, we're just going to move on. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he was saying, leave for the girl has not died, but was, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Uh, so what we see here is probably just like a cultural practice um, that is still prevalent in many cultures to this day where people will literally hire like professional mourners, right? Uh, where they will get together and they will be paid to mourn with families and stuff like that, just to really kind of set the mood for a somber occasion, basically preparing for a funeral and stuff like that. Uh, I know it sounds kind of weird to us, like if you're living in America and stuff like that, but um, this is a thing, right? It recognizes that people should not have to go through suffering alone, so they would hire people to mourn with them. Um, but what we see here is that these people are probably not the best mourners in the world um, because they don't seem very sincere. Uh, And we're going to see that in how they respond to Jesus. So Jesus comes into the official's house where, you know, the daughter is dead. 
and he sees the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, right? So they're probably wailing and moaning and crying out, grieving. And he tells them to leave, right? He doesn't want them there because this is not going to be a moment for mourning. It's going to be a moment for celebration because he's about to resurrect her. So he says, leave. The girl's not died. She's just asleep, right? So he's trying to calm everybody down. And then notice how they respond. They began laughing at him. Once again, you need to notice how people respond to Jesus in these stories. That's what Matthew's trying to highlight. Well, these people um, who were supposed to be mourning with the families, they begin to laugh at Jesus. They begin to ridicule him. It shows you they're not very sincere in their mourning. Once again, they're just hired professionals, but they seem to think that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. They think he's insane. They think he's ridiculous. And who knows, maybe the synagogue official began to explain to them what Jesus' intentions were, but the point is, these people do not have the same faith that the synagogue official has. But sure enough, the crowd gets out, right? But when the crowd had been sent out, coming in, Jesus takes her by the hand, and the girl got up. Notice how understated the actual miracle itself is, right? You're going to notice that throughout these whole stories right here, right? At the beginning of chapter 8, Matthew was really highlighting the miracle itself to accentuate Jesus' power. By the time we've gotten here, Jesus is literally resurrecting people, and we're not supposed to be surprised, right? What Matthew's really trying to highlight is how people respond, right? And so literally Jesus is resurrecting somebody for the very first time. And it's one of the most understated things in the world. The crowd leaves, he comes in, he takes her by the hand, the girl gets up, right? In other accounts, once again, the other gospels, it'll slow down and it'll talk about him like leaning in and saying Talitha Kumi and stuff like that, right? It'll actually tell you more information about how this whole thing went down. But Matthew, he isn't, a, he isn't telling a very robust, drawn out version of this story. He's being very concise because he has certain things he's trying to communicate, right? You have Jesus restoring this one woman to health and reintroducing her into the land of society, right? To where she can now go out in public again. And then you have Jesus reaching out to this other girl, right? This dead girl and restoring her to life and reintroducing her to the land of the living, right? So you have Jesus taking these two girls who are both identified as daughter. He's healing both of them, restoring both of them, and reintroducing them into the world. And we get to see how people respond, right? One woman is living by faith. And now the daughter of the synagogue official, she is living by her father's faith, right? And so Jesus um, heals the girl. She gets up. And then I want you to notice this phrase because it's going to be repeated again in a second. And this news spread throughout all the land, right? The main thing that's highlighting and the main thing Matthew's trying to communicate is that Jesus is growing in popularity. People are hearing about his miracles and this news is spreading wide, wide, wide like wildfire, which leads us to our next story. And as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and, here's the phrase again, spread the news about him throughout all the land. Okay, so here once again, we have Jesus healing not one but two people, very similar to in the last cycle where the second miracle of that story was Jesus going and he healed two demoniac men by casting the demons into um, the pigs, right? Uh, and so this is one of those places where once again, uh, it's a healing, but it's not healing just one person. It's healing two people. Uh, and he's specifically healing blind men. But kind of like we've been seeing through this, the emphasis is less on the miracle itself and more on the people's response 
to the miracle, right? And to Jesus himself. And so as you read through it, Jesus went on from there, right? So he's moving on from the official's house and two blind men followed him, right? And they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, right? These two blind men, apparently they hear about Jesus and they're following behind him. How exactly they know how to follow him? I'm assuming they're just going with the crowds, right? There's probably a bunch of people following him and they're going with. And as they're doing this, they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. That phrase right there, son of David, that title. This is the first time that we've encountered this phrase since Matthew's introduction, right? I mean, back in Matthew chapter one, the way his whole gospel began is by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And in Matthew chapter one, he mentions Jesus being the son of David, but he has not used that title since then. And I think it's very intentional, right? Because according to Matthew, this is a central component to who Jesus is. He is Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But it's finally right here with these two blind men that Jesus is actually called the son of David. He's not called the son of David by the religious leaders who can see what he's doing. He's not even called the son of David immediately by his apostles. He's called the son of David by blind people, right? Even blind men who have not be he been healed can recognize Jesus for who he is, right? And you have to realize that whenever they're calling him son of David, they're not simply speaking of his lineage. They are using this as a title for the Messiah, right? He is the son of David, not simply a son of David, the son of David. That's what they're calling him. They're identifying him as the promised king who is to come, hence why they're asking for mercy, right? They're not saying have mercy on us in the sense of, hey, we've done some really bad stuff and we really want you to be nice to us, even though we all do need that. They're speaking like people coming before a king, have mercy on us in the sense of, please hear us and hear our petition, O king, right? That's what they're doing. And I love that. I love that the first people to call Jesus son of David are blind men because even blind people who have never seen Jesus, all they have to do is hear about what he's done and they know that this guy is the Messiah. And so um, they're crying this out and Jesus keeps on walking, right? He enters the house and these men come behind him and they go into the house and Jesus turns and says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Why would Jesus ask that? Why does he ask, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Right? Um, well, first off, it implies that he knows what they're really asking for whenever he says they say, have mercy on us, right? Because you'll notice there's never an explicit moment where they say, heal us of our blindness. He knows what they mean, right? When they say, have mercy on us, they're asking for something that they do not deserve and it's something that they definitely need. Well, they, they want to be able to see, right? He is a miracle worker. They're asking for a miracle. He comes before them and he asks, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say, yes. Jesus didn't have to do that. He hasn't done that with everybody else. But with these guys, he wants to specifically ask it, or maybe Jesus has asked it with other people, but Matthew has waited to include this phrase until right here, right? And it's because once again, Matthew is trying to highlight the role of faith in all of this, right? Jesus is wanting to heal people in order to bring them to faith. Jesus is not simply a guy who performs stunts. He is not going around performing miracles just for funsies and to be the greatest showman in the world. That's not what he's doing, right? He is doing these miracles for a purpose and he is wanting to communicate a message. And now as people are coming up to him, Jesus doesn't want them to simply be coming to him for this or that or this or that. He's wanting to teach them about faith. And so he says, do you believe I'm able to do this? He doesn't simply say, do you want me to do this? Do you believe I'm able to, right? 
do you actually think that I am the one who is capable? Right? He's asking if they believe he has the authority. And they say, yes, Lord. Right? They call him with an authoritative title. Right? The word Lord in Greek can be used either to refer to a king or just, or just to a man, I guess, uh, of high rank or something like that. But it also could be used to refer to God. Right? It's the Greek word kurios. Right? And I don't think that Matthew is trying to communicate that these guys view Jesus as God. But I think that his choice of including the word Lord here definitely implies that there's some ambiguity there, right? Whenever they're saying Lord here, they're not just identifying him as a man, right? It could be that they're simply identifying him as the king, the son of David. But the word is ambiguous enough to where it could also be a layered implication. Um, it, it could be a subtle way of implying the greater revelation that's going to come over the course of this book, that Jesus is more than simply a man, right? He asked them, do you think I have the ability? Do you think I have the power to do this? And they say, yes, Lord, right? Because something about him being Lord implies that he is capable of doing it. And so in response to this, Jesus touches their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith, right? Once again, notice how Jesus is emphasizing the role of faith in this, right? He is restoring their sight. Once again, miracle of restoration, but he's doing it not simply as a magic trick. He's communicating why he's doing it. It shall be done according to your faith. Since you have believed, I restore you. And their eyes were opened. And whenever it says their eyes were opened, it obviously means they were able to see. It doesn't mean that their eyelids opened. <laughs> they were able to see. And then notice what Jesus does. He sternly warns them, saying, See that no one knows about this. But then if you keep going but they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. And so Jesus tells them, hey guys, now that I've healed you, I don't want you to go around telling everybody about this. And you do have to kind of understand, like whenever Jesus says this, it's not like Jesus is forcing them to be totally secretive about it because obviously he doesn't expect them to go around with like bandages around their eyes acting like they still can't see. He wants them to live as people who can see. And so he knows that inherently people are going to hear about it, right? It's not like, pe like people are going to see them able to see and they're going to ask, hey, how is it that you're able to see? And he's not asking them to lie, right? That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he's telling them not to go out of their way to spread the news about him, right? Um, he he's basically telling them not to go evangelize right now, right? Now is not the time for that, right? He wants them to keep it somewhat secretive for a reason I'm about to explain. But we see that that's not what happens, right? Just like we read in the last section, these people went out and they spread the news about him throughout all the land, right? This is something that Matthew, he, he ended the last story with this, he ended this story with it, and there's a reason behind this, right? What he is emphasizing is that Jesus is growing in popularity. In the last section, it started spread, I mean, in the last miracle section that we literally just read, it started spreading throughout the land, so Jesus is growing more popular. Right here again, it's spreading throughout the land. And so he's going, getting even more popular. But this is why, exactly why, Jesus has to tell them, don't tell anybody about this. Because Jesus knows where this story is heading, right? Jesus knows that he is on a collision course that is going to put him face to face with the religious leaders at the end of this whole thing. And the more he grows in popularity, the more envious the religious leaders are going to be. Jesus knows this, right? And so... This is something that we're going to see throughout all the Gospels, right? Uh, you see it especially in the Gospel of Mark, right? People call it the Messianic secret, right? Where Jesus is constantly telling people, don't tell anybody about what I'm doing right now, right? And he's not swearing them off to secrecy. He's just telling them, 
don't make a huge fuss about this because Jesus knows that the bigger fuss that is made, the shorter his ministry will be. And Jesus is trying to time it, something that the gospel of John emphasizes more than probably any other gospel. Jesus is trying to time this so that exactly when it is the appropriate time, he will be put to death, right? No sooner, no later, right? It needs to be at the appropriate hour, right? And so the more that people spread this, the faster Jesus is going to have to come face to face with the religious leaders. And Jesus knows exactly when he's going to do this, right? After three years, he's going to go down to Passover. He's going to start flipping tables. He is going to confront the religious leaders head on. He's going to rebuke them. And they are going to be the ones that hand him over to the Romans to put him to death. Jesus has that all planned out. He doesn't want the people to advance that any faster than it needs to because he still has a job to accomplish here. And so he tells them, don't tell anybody about this, not because he wants them to be totally secretive or anything like that, or not because he wants them to be liars, but simply because he wants to bide his time so that things don't happen too quickly. Because he knows that the opposition is going to build up as a result of his popularity. As if to prove this point, look at the third miracle that we're going to read, right? This is the shortest of all the miracles that we're looking at today, but it makes the point that I'm trying to say very clear, right? So the first two miracles both ended with the news of the popularity growing, right? In the first miracle, um, the news of him spread throughout the land. In the second miracle, he said, don't spread it throughout the land and news spread throughout the land. Well, if you're kind of following that, you have to wonder why is he doing this? It's because he's wanting to try to avoid as much of the opposition as he can, but then sure enough, in the third miracle, what do we see? opposition. This is what we read, verses 32 to 34. Now, as they were going out, behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the rulers of, by the ruler of the demons. Once again, notice that Matthew does the same thing. The miracle itself is very understated. The emphasis on the crowd's reactions and the religious leaders' reactions is emphasized, right? So, as they're going out, behold. Notice how each of these miracles has started with that phrase, behold. I've tried to emphasize that um, as we've been going through this gospel. Um, that's just like one of the clearest um, Hebraic details that you see in the gospel of Matthew that shows that this is written by a Jewish dude through and through, right? Because this is how Jewish people tell stories, right? Behold, they're trying to invite you to see it from their perspective. And each of these three miracle accounts that we've read today, they started with that. And as they were going out, behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. Well, this is once again parallel to other demon-possessed stories that we've seen already in these two chapters. The one that sets this apart, though, is that this guy is also mute and demon-possessed, right? So he's a demoniac, but he also cannot speak. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. Notice this, right? Once again, the emphasis is not on the actual miracle itself, right? We don't have Jesus interacting with the guy. We don't have any of that. We just have this understated, um, this understood idea that, oh, look, Jesus came across a demoniac, boom, demons cast out, right? This guy is brought to Jesus, and after the demon was cast out, right? Literally, the miracle happens in between verses 32 and 33, right? We don't even get to read about the miracle itself, because for Matthew, that is not the point. The point is how people react to Jesus. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So this miracle is very similar to the last miracle that we saw last week with the healing of the paralytic, because it was for a very similar reason. If you remember, whenever Jesus healed the paralytic, that was less about the miracle itself and more about what the miracle communicated to the crowds and to the religious leaders, 
right? Because Jesus, he healed the paralytic, but the main emphasis was not on him actually healing the paralytic. It was on him forgiving sins, right? And he healed the paralytic to prove that he had the ability to forgive sins, right? Same thing here, right? It's less about the miracle and more about the reaction. So we see that there's two reactions here, right? There's how the crowds react and there's how Jesus reacts. I mean, and how the religious leaders react. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, right? So this guy is officially healed and the crowds marveled, saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So the crowds, I would say, are reacting in a favorable way, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're responding in faith. It just means that they are marveling at this, right? They're, they're impressed by what they see, right? And they say nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And to be fair, yes, there have been other miracle workers in Israel, right? You have Elijah, you have Elisha, right? Elisha, right? You have Moses, right? Even though Moses, to be fair, he was never in Israel, right? He was always in Egypt or out in the wilderness, right? Um, but you have had other miracle workers in the scriptures, some of whom did function and work in the land of Israel. But nobody quite like this, because everything that Jesus is doing, first off, there's so many miracles. Like literally, it's like in one day, he's performing so many miracles, right? There's just so many back to back to where this guy just has like unlimited power. Uh, he's resurrecting people. He's doing everything. He's calming storms. He is performing so many things. But in addition to that, he's not having to do it in the name of God, right? You don't have Jesus going around and saying, in the name of the Lord God Almighty, get up. No, he's just simply saying, do it, right? He is the one speaking with authority, very similar to how they responded in Matthew chapters five through seven, right? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they said, nobody has ever spoken like this with such authority. That's exactly how the crowds are responding right now. The main thing that Matthew's trying to highlight to us is that when the crowds see Jesus, they realize he is unlike anything they've ever seen before. After the Sermon on the Mount, they realized he is a rabbi like never before. And uh, right here, he is emphasizing to us that Jesus is a prophet like never before, right? He is performing unprecedented miracles with unprecedented power, with unprecedented authority, and with unprecedented numerosity, right? Like He's just doing so many of them, right? This is what's blowing everybody's mind. By contrast, you look at the religious leaders, but the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the rulers of demons. The main thing I want you to notice here is that the Pharisees do not deny what Jesus has done, right? They never deny what Jesus has done. They can't, right? And this is something that's going to be true throughout the rest of the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody ever denies what Jesus has done. Nowadays, critical scholars, they'll suggest, oh, Jesus couldn't perform miracles. But notice that even his enemies at this time period did not deny that Jesus performed the miracles, all they can do is try to reinterpret things and try to cast it under a different light in order to change how people view the miracles he's performing. But they don't deny that he's doing them, right? Even the Pharisees have to admit he is casting out demons. They just have to change the story, right? They have to say, okay, he's casting out demons, but they're not doing it by the power of God. He's doing it by the ruler of the demons, right? He's appealing to Satan himself in order to be able to do this. And later on, Jesus is going to get onto them and he's going to lay into them for this accusation because he finds this despicable. But in this instance, he's not going to respond to it. Ironically, uh, what they're charging Jesus with doing is serving demons and serving the devil and doing the devil's work when really that's what they're doing right? They're blind to the fact that they are actually the ones who are doing the work of the devil when Jesus himself is doing the work of God. And so this is actually a very ironic thing that we read here. And so there's that third miracle, which then leads us to a description of Jesus' ministry, uh, which is pretty um, just general what we read here. 
And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Right here, we just have a general summary of what Jesus did at this time period in his ministry. And really what we see, uh, like, like the picture that Matthew's trying to paint for us is one of general success, right? He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, right? This is Jesus at the height of his ministry, going around, gaining popularity, right? He is going and he's, you know, he's teaching like in the synagogues, right? And so as he's teaching in the synagogues, he's helping uh, um, teach the scriptures to everybody, right? He's teaching the proper interpretations of them, right? He's doing what a rabbi should do, but he's also preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he's not just functioning like a rabbi and a teacher, but he's preaching something to yet to come, right? He's functioning like a prophet, right? Because whenever he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, this is the good news of the coming kingdom of God, which is the thing that the prophets foretold, right? So he's not just a rabbi, He's a prophet, and he's not just a rabbi and a prophet, but he's a miracle worker. He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And we've already seen a good example of that in the previous chapters, right? And so that's what Matthew's done for us, right? He's given us just a sampling of all the different things that Jesus can do, and we see that there's really nothing he can't do, right? He can literally, like, he, he can resurrect people. He can cleanse lepers. He can stop bleeding. He can literally tell a storm to shut up, and it'll listen, right? And so the idea that uh, like the main thing Matthew's been trying to communicate over these two chapters is that Jesus 100% has the authority to do all the things that he said he could do in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he was claiming a lot of authoritative things, and in chapters 8 and 9, he demonstrates that he can back it up. And the crowds are responding to this, and they're realizing this guy, who is he? Like, what is the deal here? To where even blind people can recognize this guy seems to be the Messiah. And the only people who aren't responding this way are the religious leaders, right? I mean, you've got Gentiles, you've got downcast people, you've got all these people flocking to Jesus. The only people who are opposed to him are the religious leaders. And once again, I think there's a reason why, and I mentioned this at the beginning of this whole lesson today. It's because at this point in the story, you see that Jesus is like David on the run from Saul, right? If you remember that story back in 1 Samuel, um, basically what had happened is that David had this rise to stardom uh, during the reign of King Saul, and King Saul became jealous, right? And the reason he was jealous is because the crowds were flocking towards David more than they were to him. That's the same reason why the religious leaders are jealous right now, right? Whenever David and Saul would return from war, the women would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, now the son of David is here and the Pharisees are ticked off because that's what the people are claiming, right? These people are saying, oh, like Jesus he teaches with greater authority than the rabbis, right? He says that he has a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees have their righteousness, but Jesus has a greater righteousness. The Pharisees have their authority, but Jesus has a greater authority. The Pharisees might be able to do things for God, but Jesus performs all these miracles. The Pharisees can calm the storms in our hearts, but Jesus can calm physical storms, right? And so, just like Saul growing envious of David, the Pharisees are growing envious of Jesus because he's drawing the crowds. And so, just like David in the story of 1 Samuel, he has to flee from Saul and go out into the wilderness in order to await the time whenever God's going to give the kingdom to him. That's what we see Jesus doing, right? Jesus is going out and he's going throughout the wilderness of Israel, right? Uh, he's going into a literal, like, he's going into an intentional exile where he's separating himself from the religious leaders, right? He's going and ministering in the region of Galilee. And he's going to the downcast and the, 
the people who have been trodden upon, and he's healing them, and he's helping them, and he's raising them up in the same way that David did, right? Whenever David was on the run from King Saul, who was it who came to David? The downcast, the ones who had been harmed by Saul's oppressive tyranny, right? Well, those are the people who are coming to Jesus, right? The ones who have been bearing a yoke that's too heavy for them, placed upon them by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? These are the people coming to Jesus and they're crying out to him, saying that they need somebody, which naturally leads us into verses 36 to 38. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like a sheep without a shepherd, right? That's king imagery right there. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So this is exactly what Jesus sees, right? Just like David, whenever he's on the run from Saul, David was going throughout the wilderness of Judea, right? And he was going out throughout the land. And while he was trying to avoid conflict with Saul, he was trying to help the people that he had compassion on. And the afflicted and the downtrodden would come to him and he would raise them up and he would rank, like he would build them up and to be this mighty army and these mighty people all while he awaited the day whenever the Lord would give the kingdom into his hands. Jesus is doing the same thing, right? He has separated himself from the religious leaders, right? He is trying to avoid them, right? He's telling people, don't spread the news too wide. And he's going out and he's helping the afflicted and the downtrodden. And he is planting little pockets of heaven everywhere he goes as he awaits the day whenever his father will give to him the kingdom he deserves. So he goes and he sees the crowds and he feels compassion on them, right? He doesn't feel the need to win their favor. Rather, he feels love for them. He suffers with them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd right? Jesus sees them, and despite the fact that they have religious leaders, and despite the fact that they have political leaders, he sees that these are people wandering around like sheep who don't have a shepherd to guide them, right? They don't have a King David. They have a King Saul, right? This is the, this is the world that David came upon, right? Um, this is the same imagery that really we see whenever David comes, um, like the first story where David shows up to fight Goliath, right? He shows up at this battlefield and the armies of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd, right? They have a king amongst them, but he's not serving them and he's not guiding them to faith. And so Jesus shows up in the same way and he is here to take down Goliath, right? He sees the people distressed, downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. They have sheep, like they're sheep who have nowhere to go, nobody to guide them to greener pastures, nobody to lead them by still waters, nobody to guide them through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus has immense compassion on them. And so he turns to his disciples. And once again, remember, Matthew is trying to emphasize discipleship. And so whenever we see Jesus turning to the disciples, we need to pay attention to what he says. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the first time that Matthew really uses the harvest imagery um, to convey something about the kingdom of God, um, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. Matthew's going to use this imagery a whole lot, especially whenever Jesus starts getting into the parables. But Matthew, uh, but Jesus turns to his disciples here, right? Um, Jesus sees a problem, right? He sees that these people are going around, but they don't have the right religious leaders, right? They don't have the right people to guide them. And Jesus is their king, but at the same time, Jesus knows that he's not going to be here forever, right? He knows that eventually he's going to be taken up. He knows that he's going to be gone. And so the people are sheep without a shepherd, and they're going to need shepherds to guide them. So who does he turn to? His disciples. And this is what he says to the disciples. 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? Harvest is a time of gathering. And so whenever Jesus looks out at these crowds, he sees a bunch of people who are in desperate need of the kingdom, a plentiful bounty that is suffering for the lack of genuine leaders uh, to really just go out and tend to their needs, right? That's what Jesus sees. He sees just a plentiful, plentiful bounty of harvest, right? So many people who are ripe to be drawn in, but there's nobody actually willing to go out and take care of those people because the people who would be gathering the harvest are too focused on serving themselves, right? And so Jesus' heart is breaking at this and he tells to the disciples, there's not enough workers out there because that harvest, there are people who need God and there are people who are crying out for him and there are people who are hungry for him but they don't have the right people to guide them into his presence. And so he tells them to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So he's talking to the disciples and says, pray that God will send somebody out into the harvest so that they can gather it in. This reminds me of the book of Isaiah. And don't worry, we're about to wrap this up. This reminds me of the book of Isaiah. Whenever Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God, Isaiah chapter six, and God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds and says, send me. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, right? He turns to the disciples and says, you know, there's a big harvest out there, but not enough people to work it. I want you to pray that God would send somebody out to go and work that harvest. Who is Jesus going to send out to work the harvest? The disciples. And that's exactly what we're going to get to whenever we go into Matthew chapter 10. Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is going to do exactly this. He's going to send workers out into the harvest in order to gather things in, right? And Matthew chapter 10 is going to be Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples to go out and minister to the people of Israel, right? And so it directly follows what we see right here. That's what Matthew is setting up. That's going to lead us into our discourse section. But that being said, we're not totally done with Matthew chapters 8 and 9 because we kind of breeze through that very quickly. And so next week, what I want to do is I want to revisit chapters 8 and 9 and take a big overview look at it uh, and talk about some other things that we skipped along the way, right? I know that we're starting to pick up the pace a little bit, but that's because we spent a long time on Matthew chapters 1 through 7 because I really wanted to lay the groundwork to help us learn to interpret this story correctly. That being said, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are and Maranatha.